shut up and listen. And now let's swim into the second wave. This one is extra juicy for feminism in Canada. Once again, read from wikipedia.org. The free internet encyclopedia. Though feminism in Canada continued after the work of the famous five during the Depression and the Second World War, feminist activism in Canada was not as clear to see as it was during the fight for suffrage and thereafter. However, women's engagement in the workforce during the Second World War brought about a new consciousness in women with regards to their place in public life, which led to a public inquiry on the status of women, as well as new campaigns and organizing for equal rights. Whereas the first wave was organized around access to education and training. The second wave of Canadian feminism focused on women's role in the workforce, the need for equal pay for equal work, a desire to address violence against women and concerns about women's reproductive rights. Right. During the Second World War, Canadian women were actively pursued by the Canadian government to contribute to the war effort. One of the ways in which women contributed to the war effort was by joining the workforce. Prior to the war, some young and unmarried women had already joined the workforce. However, during the war, an increased need for female workers arose in many industries. Due to the depleted pool of male workers who had largely been mobilized to fight in the war, the inclusion of women with children into the workforce led the federal government to develop a program known as the Dominion Provincial Wartime Day Nurseries Agreement in order to assist working mothers with child care during the duration of the war. Under the agreement, the federal government offered to help the provinces subsidize child care programs. Quebec and Ontario 
took advantage of the agreement and developed child care facilities such as nurseries and after-school programs. Women also contributed to the war effort by volunteering. Women in these organizations engaged in a range of activities including sewing clothes for the Red Cross, cultivating victory gardens, and collecting materials like rubber and metal scraps for wartime production. Women also participated in the war by joining the military. By 1942, women were recruited into the military, air force, and navy. In fact, says Wikipedia, by the end of the war, 20,497 women were members of the army. 16,221 were members of the Air Force and 6,665 were members of the Navy. The Canadian government expected women to return to their roles in the home once the war ended. In 1941, the government created an advisory committee on reconstruction to deal with the post-war reconstruction issues. Shortly after its creation, some Canadian women advocated for female representation within the committee due to the vital contribution of women to the war effort. Consequently, in 1943, the government created a subcommittee to deal with issues women would encounter once the war ended. The subcommittee was headed by Margaret McWilliams, a journalist and notable women's organization activist and consisted of nine other women from across the country. The subcommittee produced a report with a number of recommendations including that women should be trained or retrained for jobs on the same basis as men and that household workers should receive labor benefits like unemployment insurance. The report received a little public attention and ultimately failed to achieve any of its recommendations. However, many of its recommendations were discussed once again decades later in the 1970 report of the Royal Commission on the Status of Women. When the war finally ended, many Canadian women did as the government expected of them and returned to their roles in the home. Additionally, 
When the war ended, some of the services the government offered working women during the war, like childcare, were discontinued. Yet in the years following the war, the number of women joining the workforce steadily increased as women's contribution became more and more necessary to sustaining both the home and the economy, a fact addressed by a number of government initiatives. In 1951, the Ontario government passed the Female Employees Fair Remuneration Act, and by the end of the 1950s, all provinces except for Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador had passed similar legislation. In 1954, the government of Canada created a specialized woman's department within the Department of Labor. And in 1956, it also passed legislation providing pay equity for women working in the federal service, in the federal civil service. And now, for the Royal Commission on the Status of Women, 1970. The Royal Commission on the Status of Women was a Canadian Royal Commission that examined the status of women and recommended steps that might be taken by the federal government to ensure equal opportunities with men in all aspects of Canadian society. The commission commenced on 16 of February, 1967 as an initiative of Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson, public sessions were conducted the following year to accept public comment for the Commission to consider as it formulated its recommendations. Florence Byrd was the Commission's Chair. The Commissioners appointed were Florence Byrd, Chairperson, Elsie Mac. Gil, Lola M. Lange, Jeanne Lapointe, Doris Ogilvy, Donald R. Gordon Jr. resigned from commission, Jacques Henry Pin, John Peters Humphrey appointed following Gordon's resignation. The National Union of Students. Canada, NUS, formed in 1972 and became the Canadian Federation of Students in 1981. While student aid, education, cutbacks, and by the late 1970s, tuition fees may have been the primary policy concerns of the National Student Organization 
there was a definite undercurrent of women student organizing in NUS and on local campuses. Women and some men supporters rallied around issues of sexism on student councils and in NUS. Violence against women, abortion rights, and the establishing women's centers and daycare on campuses. By 1979, NUS established the Declaration of the Rights of the woman student. Yay. Next topic, violence against women and the battered women's movement. The battered women's shelter movement in Canada emerged predominantly during the late 1960s and early 1970s within the framework of second-wave feminism, building on the oft-used second-wave slogan, the personal is political. Second-wave understandings of the state's role in regulating private life pave the road for a re conceptualization of domestic violence as a social problem as opposed to a completely private manner. The movement was generated in large part because for women who had experienced domestic violence there was no place to go. However, several feminists have criticized the battered women's movement for its reliance on the battered woman as victim archetype. We continue with the National Committee on the Status of Women. The National Action Committee, NAC, was formed as a result of the frustration of women at the inaction of the federal government in regards to the recommendations of the Royal Commission beginning in 1972 as a coalition of 23 women's groups. By 1986, it had 350 organizational members, including the Women's Caucuses of the three biggest political parties. Partly funded by government grants, the NAC was widely regarded as the official expression of women's interests in Canada and received a lot of attention from the media. Media. In 1984, there was a televised debate on women's issues among the leaders of the contending political parties during the federal election campaign. The NAC and the women's issues were receiving a lot of attention, and the NAC 
was rapidly growing. Although beginning in 1983, it had competition from Real Women of Canada, a right-wing lobby group. Real Women of Canada. And now for two cherries on top. One, Canadian Human Rights Act, 1977. Canadian Human Rights Act, 1977, passed by Prime Minister of the time, Pierre Trudeau. The Canadian Human Rights Act gave basic rights to all humans. 1977. There was no discrimination based on sex, race, religion, etc. It specified that there must be equal pay for work of equal value. There had been significant disparity between the pay received by women and by men. However, by the mid-1980s, there was still disparity. Disparity. Full-time female employees earned on average only 72% of what men earned. The second cherry on top, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. In 1980, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau announced his plan to repatriate the Canadian Constitution and with it a new Charter of Rights and Freedoms to identify clearly the various rights to be protected and remove them henceforth from governmental interference. With so much division in Canada on what should be included in a Bill of Rights, the federal government decided to hold a special joint committee of the House of Commons and the Senate, which allowed the public to submit amendments to the Constitution. Women's organizations saw this as an opportunity for Canadian women's rights to be legally and equally represented through entrenchment in the Charter. On November 20th, the National Action Committee on the Status of Women, NAC, had their opportunity to speak. The NAC saw the importance of equal recognition in the Charter for both men and women as a way to combat systemic discrimination. In response to the Nation Action Committee's presentation, Senator Harry Hayes responded, 
I was just wondering why we don't have a section here for babies and children. All you girls are going to be working and you're not going to have anybody looking after them. This statement exemplified the ignorance and discrimination Canadian women were facing. In February 1981, the National Action Committee scheduled a conference for women on the Constitution that was cancelled by the federal government. In response to the cancellation, Doris Anderson, President of the Canadian Advisory Council on the Status of Women and prominent feminist, resigned in protest. This act of protest galvanized Canadian women. Feminist groups were angered at the cancellation of the conference and began to organize their own conference and a coalition was formed, which came to be known as the Ad Hoc Committee of Canadian Women on the Constitution. On February 14, 1981, about 1,300 women exercised their democratic right and marched into Parliament to debate the Charter. They were demanding a specific clause on equal rights between men and women. This conference resulted in amendments to Section 15, which guarantees an equality of rights under the law, along with the creation of Section 28, which states, Notwithstanding anything in this charter, the rights and freedoms referred to in it are guaranteed equally to male and female persons. Even though the Canadian Constitution was established in 1982, my birthday, the sections on equality were under moratorium and did not come into effect until April 17, 1985. The last splash in wave two, abortion. A significant concern of second wave feminists in Canada was access to abortion until 1969 Abortion was a criminal offense under the criminal code and women were dying from trying to procure abortions outside of the law. For these reasons, abortion was legalized by Parliament in 1969 under the Criminal Law Amendment Act 1968-69. Abortion remained an offense unless it was first approved by a therapeutic abortion committee on the grounds that continuation of the pregnancy would 
or would be likely to endanger her life or health. The abortion had to be performed in a hospital rather than in a clinic. Only one in five hospitals had the committee required to approve of the operation resulting in many women crossing the border to the United States to receive one. By 1970, women nationwide mobilized to organize a cross-country abortion caravan from Vancouver to Ottawa that called for increased reproductive freedom through increased access to abortion and birth control. After the passage of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, prominent Montreal doctor Henry Morgan Taylor was again convicted under the abortion provision. This time, when the case reached the Supreme Court, he was successful in R.V. Morgan Taylor in 1988. The court ruled by a 5-2 to two majority that the abortion provision of the criminal code infringed the Charter's guarantee of security of the person under Section 7. There was no single majority decision. Justice Bertha Wilson, the first woman on the Supreme Court appointed in 1982, wrote one of the strongest opinions striking down the provision. Canada signed the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women in 1980 and ratified it in 1981. Swim effortlessly across the bridge of water. Open the red door and enter the portal. Bedtime Stories Darling is a sensual ASMR experience guiding you right where you need to be in bed. You're listening to Boudoir Therapy Season 2. Shut up and listen. Coming up next, wave 3 and 4.